Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new Far-Fetched Fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 454. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Hey, we've got three stories today. Yes, man. Go on there, Jeremy, pull out all the stops from compared to last week's. I hope you enjoyed last week's story. Before we get into the the, the three stories this week, just a little update on, if you remember, I was cleansing the the Starship Sofa engines, me, me iMac computer there. I had to wipe it all clean. It was just starting to choke up. And then, you see, I got it, I think, 2008, 2010, somewhere around there, a long, long time ago. And it's starting out to crunchy <laughs> when you're going to do in video or you're editing sound and stuff like that. Oh, it's a little bit slow. So I wiped everything off, as as I was saying. And my main thing I was worried about was I use Adobe Audition for the Mac on this, you know. And it, like I say, I bought that dude oodles ago. And I thought, well, I've got a backup copy, you know. But no, it wasn't the backup copy that and it didn't work anyways when I put it in. And going to, you would think just, you know, like, this is the one thing, you know, you go to Apple, you can just download, you know, I've got um, Final Cut Pro for video. You go there, you just download it again. You go to Adobe and it didn't recognise my email, which is starshipsover, gmail.com, you know what I mean? It's the only one I use. It didn't recognise this, and I, I logged in. Eventually, got logged in. There was no products that I'd bought there, you know. And now it's all in the cloud. Everything's in the cloud, so you can and you rent the, the the software. So I had to bite the bullet and start renting <laughs> Adobe Edition, which is actually quite a fortune, to be quite honest. But it's such a good bit of kit for audio, do you know what I mean, it's just like, it's one of the kind of industry leaders there for audio, and I've used it, that's all I've used, do you know what I mean, when I was even getting hooky copies, hooky copies, when I was, when we first started, do you know what I mean, just, everyone said, you've got to use this, and when I first started using it, you, you look at the price, thing, eh, you're kidding, but now anyways, I'm, that's all behind us now, but now, we're kind of, I'm renting, I'm so like temporary. I'm renting Adobe Edition, but it is a lovely. It's so up to date and modern. This you know this new bit of software. Anyway, that's my woes put to bed on Cupid. Hopefully, I'll be doing that too quick. Oh man, I tell you what, it took a while. Do you know what I mean? And there's some cussing potty mouth by myself. Oh, if the kids came in, it was just like dad, dad. You shouldn't be saying. Get them. Normally I'm calm. <laughs> anyway, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have two stories by Alex Schwarzman. And we played Alex once before as well. And we've got a story by Stephen S. Power 
as well coming up. So what I'll do is I'll play one of Alex's first, then we'll jump into Alex's main fiction, and right at the end we'll have Stephen S. Power. So that is all coming into today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So first up, we'll play the little short story by Alex Schwarzman. I'll give you a little heads up about Alex. Alex Schwarzman is a writer, translator and anthologist from Brooklyn, New York. Over 80 of his short stories have appeared in Nature, Intergalactic Medicine Show, Galaxy Edge, Daily SF and other venues. He is the winner of the 2014 WSFA Small Press Award for Short Fiction. His collection, Explaining Cthulhu to Grandma and Other Stories, and his steampunk human novella, H.G. Wells' Secret Agent, were both published in 2015. Alex edits Unidentified Funny Objects, the annual anthology series of humorous science fiction and fantasy he has edited several other anthologies as well he is currently at work on his first novella which at the current pace will be finished sometime around 2020 and there's a link on to alex's site as well there <laughs> this story is narrated by dan kelly after establishing a thriving, compassionate and sustainable global culture of several nearby timelines, Danny Kelly is now mucking about in this one, with its alien secret conquistadors and suicidal spiral into convenience, because none of us are free, while any one of us still buys the premise that something has gone terribly wrong, or whatever. Meanwhile, he remains cleverly disguised as an artist, perpetually on the fish of a big break. Whether making movies, music, developing games, or even as a humble genre voice actor, his dark and slightly silly featurette, Daughter of God, should be showing by now anywhere soon. And it does not star Keanu Reeves. Danny, a mad, crazy fool. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Far Side of the Wilderness by Alex Schwarzman One way or another, I am nearing the end of my journey. The spaceship is quiet now, except for the low rumble of the engines. It took me days, but I found all of the speakers which were filling the cabins with a cacophony of alarm bells, I pried each speaker open with a knife and cut the little rubbery wires until the last of the infernal things had finally been silenced. Deprived of its voice, the ship is blinking lies at me via the console screen. Warning, low fuel levels. Warning, engine maintenance required. Warning, life support system failure imminent. I once thought of the ship as a friend, a steed sent by the Creator to be the tool of our deliverance. Somehow... The deceiver found its way in, wormed inside of the ship's machinery, and is doing whatever it can to break my spirit and thwart me from reaching paradise. I place the decrepit postcard on top of the screen, covering the red blinking letters, then wrap myself in an extra layer of clothes against the steadily cooling air. On the world of Kemet, we spent our days scavenging. Our tribe traveled to a section of the caves we hadn't been to for a while, long enough for fresh moss to grow on the rocks and tiny gnars to repopulate. And then we'd make camp and collect the moss and trap the gnars, and eat for a few days, until food became difficult to obtain and we had to move again. 
In the evenings, as we huddled around the fire, Mother and other elders would tell stories. Mother taught me that, a very long time ago, everyone used to live in paradise. She told me about the world of plenty, the world of blue skies and white clouds, where gentle sunlight bronzed the skin, and the air was thick and smelled of flowers. Countless generations lived in paradise, and they did not know hunger or fear. She told me about the deceiver, who whispered from the shadows. It filled people's hearts with pride and desire and wanderlust until they built flying machines powerful enough to puncture the sky. They thought themselves equals of the Creator as they crossed the void and spread out across the stars, but all they really accomplished was to deny their children paradise. And the deceiver rejoiced. When I was eight, I once hiked to the barren surface in search of the wonderful place from my mother's tales. I walked around for most of the night until the pale reddish glow of our sun appeared in the east. Soon it would scorch the surface, make it too hot for a human to survive outside. I barely made it back to the caves, sweating and sunburned, choked on the sparse, dusty air. I did not find what I sought, and I began to doubt her stories. When I confessed my doubts to Mother, she didn't chide me. She reached into her pack and retrieved a bundle wrapped in many layers of cloth. Inside was an ancient picture, a postcard, covered in plastic. This is the only image of paradise that survives on Kemet, Mother said. The tribe had a handful of items from before the colonists landed on Kemet, mostly simple gadgets, built well enough to survive the centuries, flashlights and water purifiers, and drills. But I've never seen anything like this. I reached for the picture with great care. A bright yellow sun reflected off azure water, more water than I could ever imagine collected in one place. Next to the water grew a cluster of trees, their branches reaching proudly toward the sky. And although the picture was very old and faded, the colors in it were still brighter than anything on my world. There is a better place in the universe, Mother said, a better life. We must never forget this, never surrender our values and our culture, and never descend into barbarism. Then, one day, the Creator will welcome us home. I cast doubt from my heart, and resolved never again to let the deceiver weaken my faith. The ship came when we were studying. Every day, the young ones had to spend two hours on reading and writing and math and all manner of other subjects. Like so many of my friends, I often lost patience with learning about things that did not matter on our world, couldn't help fill our stomachs. Mother was patient with me. She explained that we must rise above our circumstances so that one day the Creator would look upon us with pride, forgive our ancestors' transgressions, and bring us back into the fold. It was while we struggled to memorize the periodic table of elements that there was a rumble and the walls and ceiling of the caves shuddered, shaking loose a shower of pebbles. It felt like a quake, but came from above and not below. When the noise ceased and the shaking stopped, we rushed to the mouth of the cave. Outside, there was the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. The ship rested on its side wedged between rock formations, its gleaming silver surface out of place in our world. There was a faint glow around the hull, which made the ship look like it had a halo. I knew right away that this was the Creator's gift, the carriage to bring us home to paradise. We approached the ship, and it opened to us, like a desert flower at dawn. Inside, there was death. We found five bodies inside the ship, and one woman who was still alive, in her quarters. 
She was feverish and sick, and we could do nothing except tend to her and make her last days a little more comfortable. I volunteered to stay with her, despite the dire warnings she issued in her rare moments of lucidity. The strange smells and textures of the ship called to me and were too alluring for anything to scare me off. Her name was Beata, and she was an explorer. Her ancestors left paradise at the same time as mine, four hundred years ago, but they landed on a much more hospitable planet than Kemet, and kept on developing their technologies. This ship was designed to travel from one human colony to another, so that Beata's people could reconnect with their long-lost cousins. She said that they had been to several worlds before something went wrong. There were no people alive on the last planet they had visited, and the crew became sick very soon after taking off. Beata believed that they were exposed to the same virus which must have killed the original colonists, and she begged me to stay away from her lest I contract the disease and pass it on to my tribe. Confident that the Creator's favor would protect me, I stayed and questioned Beata about paradise. She said that we came from the planet called Earth and that it was no utopia. Our ancestors poisoned its air and polluted its water, and that's why they had to leave for the stars. I didn't believe her. Beata's people never lost their technology or their pride. Their lives weren't harsh, so they never found the strength to deny the deceiver. Their bodies and spirits were too soft, and the Creator never forgave them like He did us. That is why I didn't get sick despite spending days in a small room with Beata. We talked of distant worlds and wonders of space. I told Beata of our life in the caves, and she was horrified. She said that her people could help, could carry us to a more hospitable world, that her scout ship was automated and would eventually return to her home world, and that she would record a message for them once she felt strong enough. But she was getting weaker and weaker. Near the end, she ordered the ship to transfer control to me and asked me to record the call for help. We burned Beata's body and scattered the ashes on the same plateau where we burned the bodies of the other explorers, so that Beata could be with her friends in death. That's when I told the others that I could pilot the ship. It was a lie, of course. Not even Beata could pilot it. Learning that skill took a lifetime of training on her world. All I could do was give the ship's onboard computer basic commands and hope that its machine brain could interpret them right. But it wouldn't do to let the others know this. The Creator had chosen me to lead them home. Twelve of us boarded the ship. It was too small to house the entire tribe, and so the elders decided to send only the young. I wanted so badly for Mother to come, but arguing for this would not have been fair or wise. She hugged me tight when I was ready to go. Hope and pride shone on her face. She handed me a small bundle. So you'll never lose your way, she said, her voice trembling. I claimed the captain's bunk, placing my few belongings in the compartments by its side. Then I unwrapped her gift. It was the postcard, her most prized possession. The yellow sun beckoned to me from the photograph. Fly, ship, I implored, and the engine roared to life, lifting us toward the arms of the Creator. Life on the ship was better than the life in the caves. There was a machine that produced an edible paste, that was tasteless but filling. Little screens could be made to play music and moving pictures. And the time passed by quickly while we discovered sights and concepts that were previously unfamiliar. I maintained the illusion of control. Take us to paradise, I whispered to the ship when others couldn't hear me. Unspecified parameters, the ship would answer. Earth, fly us to Earth, I begged. Unable to alter flight plan, the ship would say. 
I knew that surely, with time, I could convince it. This place is not what you promised, said my tribesmen when the ship had landed. Outside, grains of frozen water danced in the frigid air. Everything was covered in white, except the area around the ship where the engines melted the water and uncovered black patches of wet dirt. Beata had said that the ship would travel to planets with known human colonies. But if any people had lived in this inhospitable place, they had long since moved or died. The ship needs to rest, I told my people. It cannot make such a long journey all at once. They accepted my explanation. We let the ship rest a while and wandered the alien landscape. Our feet left deep indentations in the frozen water. There were people on the next world. Millions of lights illuminated cities so large that their outlines could be seen from space. Was this the world of Beata's people? We were eager to meet them. They fired weapons at us before we even landed. Missiles exploded against the sides of the ship but weren't powerful enough to penetrate the hull. On the ground, war machines rolled towards us from every direction and continued to fire. These people did not see us as long-lost cousins. I asked the ship to carry us away, and it complied. Maintenance and minor repairs are required, the ship blinked at me from the console display. It will be all right, I patted the great mechanical steed. Take us to Earth, and the Creator will see to it that you arrive safely. We hopped across a dozen different worlds. We swam in shallow lakes under the light of three moons, and walked in fields of wildflowers, each twice as tall as a man. But every time we landed on a world with other humans, I refused to open up the ship. The encounter on the war planet had made me cautious, and I couldn't risk the possibility that some bad people might covet our ship and try to take it away. The ship was asking me for repairs more insistently now, but it was a good and true steed, and it soldiered on despite the fact that I could do nothing to assist it. That is when we arrived on the world of the Purple Sun. The ship landed in an idyllic valley. The Purple Sun shone above the land of plenty, which burst with a medley of bright colors. Plants swayed gently in the warm breeze. A peaceful clear spring was lined with trees, their branches weighed down with large, juicy fruit. We explored the valley, and the orange grass under our feet felt like the softest blanket. It was several hours after the landing that strangers emerged from beyond the trees. I was alarmed, but they didn't appear hostile. They wore soft tunics and looked healthy and beautiful. They spoke in a sing-song language we did not understand, but there was kindness in their eyes and smiles on their faces, and soon we were no longer afraid. We spent nearly two weeks in the company of the Batawi people, and were beginning to learn their language and customs. I enjoyed our stay as much as the others did, but also impatient to continue the journey. Why should we ever leave? asked my tribesmen. This world has everything we could ever hope for. It's beautiful here, I said, but it's not our home. The Creator awaits us on earth. Surely this pleasant oasis is another test of our determination, our faith. But they wouldn't listen. Not a single one of them would return with me to the ship. I was shocked at the ease with which the others gave up our quest. I would take any risk, give up anything to reach paradise. But my friends were eager to trade the Creator's favor for the promise of comfort this planet offered them. I pled and threatened, all to no avail. I waited for several more weeks, and hoped that time would teach them wisdom. But they were genuinely happy on this world, welcomed and loved by the Batawi, 
and soon doubt began to creep into my own heart. I couldn't allow the deceiver to gain foothold within me again, so I left the others to their new abode and continued the journey alone. There are so many stars out there, more than one could count in a lifetime. Which one of them holds my salvation? I have seen more wonders than I could have ever imagined growing up in the caves of Kemet. I have visited dozens of planets, heavens and hells and everything in between. I delivered my people to the far side of the wilderness. Will the Creator reward me for my faith, my stalwart willingness to press on, or punish me for abandoning them there? I stroked the brittle surface of the postcard. Mother told me many times of the blue and white jewels suspended against the black velvet backdrop of the cosmos. More than anything else in the world, I want to see it for myself. The deceiver cannot defeat me. Countless generations of my people subsisted in caves but never lost their faith or their humanity. Their faith kept them going through the worst of it, and the Creator blessed them and called them home. My faith is stronger yet, and the Creator is kind, and will surely allow me a glimpse of paradise, even if only from the distance. I watch the stars from the viewport of the ship that is dying around me, and I wait. Big thank you, Alex and Dan. What can I say? So there's links on the Dan side as well. Next, we'll play the, the other story. This is the main fiction by Alex Schwarzman, Fallen Dominoes. And it's narrated by Emma Amicus. I'll give you a little heads up. We should know Emma by now. Emma Amicus is a nomadic screenwriter director based in Los Angeles and Seattle. Her first feature film was due out in 2015, and she's currently now writing the pilot for a new show by Zombie Orpheus Entertainment. She regularly makes terrible life choices in the pursuit of stories and is very bad at finding time to work on a website. You can follow her at Twitter at Eba Amicus. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present... Dominoes Falling by Alex Schwartzman Jack Garnell studied his methane contact. She didn't seem all that dangerous, despite the rumors. Was it really true she had killed a villicus general with her bare hands? Kana sat across the table from him in the tiny control room of the stacked deck. Her face remained passive, her semi-translucent blue skin betraying nothing. Jack was never very good at reading the facial and body cues of other species. He knew that Kana was a security officer for the Antares Federation, and that the intel she offered to trade was solid. He suppressed a shudder at the thought of the body count attributed to her in the early days of the Collapse, the time when her government set out to build a coalition of nearby planets, whether the residents of those planets liked it or not. He was especially glad to have the ace there, probing inside Kana's head. It's all here. Kana pushed a secure data chip across the table towards Jack. The complete record of Zegslar and Vilka's ship movements and cargo manifests from all systems controlled by the Antares Federation. Warm. Ace sent the short telepathic burst into Jack's mind, indicating that the methane was telling the truth. Jack smiled and accepted the chip. He kept thinking of how Kana might react if she knew Ace was in the next cabin over, separated from them by a thin plastic wall. 
Many Matheans still believe the Kanzai to be devils incarnate. What would Kana say if she saw Ace's huge, tentacled body floating in the nutrient bath, a large section of his skull removed, and clumps of wires connecting his centuries-old brain to a powerful computer? The Zyklar were not above experimenting on their subjects, and the Kanzai cyborg was a result of such an experimentation they had left behind. Ace was permanently installed on the stacked deck, the Black Ops stealth ship jacket appropriate as his personal transport, reading the minds of anyone who came aboard like a living, real-time lie detector. He sent signals directly into Jack's head. Warm for true, cold for false. The ship was aptly named. An ace up his sleeve allowed Jack a tremendous advantage in his negotiations. You're trading a lot for year-old information, said Kana. Jack held up a similar data chip. Our intelligence on the Cortian Alliance. Quite a bit more current than a year old, I might add. He looked Khan in the eye. Before I hand this over, I must have your word that you won't reveal the source of the intel, not even to your own people. My planet's neutrality can't be compromised over this. I promise, said Kana. Warm. Jack handed over the chip. If your intelligence service picks up anything more up-to-date about the Zykeslar, I'd be very interested in trading for that information. Kana placed the chip in one of the many pockets of her suit and got up to leave. If I hear any news about the Zykeslar, you'll be the first to know. Cold. In his line of business, Jack could hardly expect an overabundance of the truth. Jack watched her go and rotated the data chip in his fingers. It would take hours to sift through the information, but he didn't mind the tedium. The answer was out there, and he'd leave no stone unturned looking for it. Jack found his boss in the conference room on his comlink, doing what he did best. I understand, Governor. It's not how things were done in the past. Your job was so much easier then. Malcolm Carver spoke softly, as if sympathizing with the bureaucrat's plight. The Zykeslar and the Vilicus issued the orders, and your only responsibility was to jump to the exact height the overlords had specified. Malcolm used the long conference table to set up rows upon rows of plastic dominoes as he spoke. He kept the video off. However, things are different now. However, things are different now. Malcolm's tone suddenly changed. Every word he spoke cut like the strike of a whip. These days, you have to occasionally surprise everyone and think for yourself. I don't intend to micromanage you, and if you become too much of a nuisance, I'll replace you with someone who can get things done without calling me for approval every little thing. Do we understand each other? He listened to his earphones and continued setting up the dominoes, reaching into a large box under the table for a handful more. Very well, Governor. Enjoy the rest of your day. Malcolm touched the link to the end of the call and turned his attention to his visitor. Jack! He smiled, and the two clasped hands. You really let him have it, said Jack. I thought politicians were supposed to hide their displeasure behind meaningless niceties. Governor Patel is a decent administrator, said Malcolm. It's a shame that I need to alienate him. 
My political opponents in his region have been a little too well organized for my liking. Patel likes to be in charge of things. Once he decides to join the opposition, uh, they'll keep each other busy for months, struggling for dominance. Too busy to cause me any serious grief. Jack found it difficult to wrap his mind around alienating an ally for strategic advantage, but he trusted Malcolm's judgment. The man was a genius with this sort of thing, planning sophisticated political ploys several complicated moves ahead, and somehow always coming out on top. Running the planet isn't easy, is it? Sure it is, said Malcolm. Just enslave everyone, and have your loyal-to-a-fault lapdogs do the heavy lifting. The two men shared a smile. The Zykslar had conquered the entire galaxy, and ruled it as they saw fit for centuries, with the Vilicus, a race that worshipped the Zykslar as gods, enacting their will. They had colonized new planets and moved Terrans and other species around like so many chess pieces. And then, with no warning at all, the Zykslar had disappeared. No one, not even their Vilicus underlings, knew what had happened. Distraught and directionless, the Vilicus withdrew in search of their masters, leaving billions of beings on hundreds of colonies to fend for themselves. Nine months ago, Malcolm had been the mayor of the largest human city on Stamadin, and Jack, his chief of police. Malcolm was the kind of man who knew how to recognize an opportunity. By the time the dust had settled, he was in charge of the new government of Stamadin, having masterfully played the planet's various races and political factions against one another. Jack became the chief of security for an entire world. Speaking of making independent decisions, Jack smiled meekly at his friend. Malcolm grabbed another handful of dominoes. Let me guess, you want to go off-planet again, chasing your mystery. I have a really solid lead. Ace confirmed it for me. I need you here, taking care of business, instead of chasing after the Zykeslar. I need Ace, too. Learning what happened to the Zykeslar is the most important thing I can be doing for our security, said Jack. We've had this conversation before. Malcolm set several more dominoes. Jack had been working for Malcolm since the first mayoral campaign. He always executed Malcolm's schemes without question, even when they seemed outlandish. He wished that Malcolm would reciprocate in trusting his judgment. You're always telling me to think strategically, to plan ahead. That's exactly how the Zykeslar must think, too. They move tens of thousands of colonists from world to world, terraform some planets, annihilate others. They are setting the dominoes, Mal, planning many moves ahead. They're setting the stage for their return. Malcolm looked up from the table. They might return tomorrow or in a thousand years. Or never. If they decide to take over again, there isn't a damn thing we can do to stop that. So the prudent course of action is to ignore what you can't control and to make the most of their absence. You're right, said Jack. But what if we knew their plan? Can you imagine the sort of strategic advantage that might yield? Come on. The Office of Planetary Security won't collapse without me. <sighs> All right, said Malcolm after pursing his lips and making a show of reaching a difficult, yet magnanimous decision. Take the stack deck. But I want you back here putting out local fires as soon as possible. You got it, boss. Malcolm finished setting up the dominoes. He pushed the piece in front, and the two of them watched as the dominoes tumbled, 
spreading graceful, orderly destruction in waves across the complex patterns on the tabletop. New Canberra had not survived the Zyklar's departure nearly as well as Stamadin had. The town where Jack landed had been a tourist destination once, a tropical paradise with warm, shallow water and pristine sand beaches that attracted visitors from all over the planet and beyond. But since the Zyklar had disappeared, the long-standing supply chains collapsed, the tourists had left, and the residents, cut off from a steady supply of food and fuel, descended into anarchy. Jack made his way from the barely functioning spaceport into town. The shops, once prosperous from the tourist trade, were closed, their windows boarded up. Piles of glass shards lay glinting on the ground, where elaborate displays had been broken during the rioting. The streets were full of garbage and devoid of traffic. As he walked, Jack could hear the muffled sound of children playing in the yard somewhere off the main street, but he saw no one. He could feel suspicious eyes peeking at him from behind the shades of the apartments above the abandoned streets. Jack reached his destination, a single-story building that stood out from a fresh coat of bright yellow paint. The backlit neon sign above the entrance depicted a Terran swimmer in scrubs and a breathing mask. Underneath, the text read, Dive Bar, in large blue letters. He entered the dimly lit bar. An assortment of diving gear, from human wetsuits and snorkels to saurian buoyancy compensators to gadgets the purpose of which Jack could only guess at, hung on the walls. A handful of patrons nursed their drinks in silence. There was no music, no laughter. Jack stepped up to the counter, where a methane bartender fiddled with a stack of shot glasses. Solar wind, he told the bartender. When his drink arrived, he handed over double the amount of credits it was worth. I'm looking for Prax, he said. The bartender said nothing, but he nodded towards the back. All Jack could make out was a large silhouette, hunched in a booth. That Prax, he asked. See any other silicates around here? The bartender said. Jack ordered another of whatever the silicate had been drinking, and carried both drinks over to the booth. May I sit? He offered the silicate a gallon-sized mug of what looked like steaming orange juice. Prax eagerly accepted the drink, and drained half of it in an enormous gulp. Seated in the booth, he was nearly as tall as Jack, his powerful forearms nearly as thick as an average Terran's torso. His rough, light gray skin shone like a polished granite countertop. Jack slid into the booth across from him. My name is Jack. I heard you might be in possession of certain valuable information, and I was hoping we could do business. Prax studied the Terran. You want the coordinates of the secret Xylar base? Jack was surprised at the alien's candor. Yeah. You have them? Prax nodded. How? I was part of the construction crew. The Zegslar brought thousands of silicates to a system with no habitable worlds and made us build it. At first, I thought it was just like any other orbital defense station. Then I grew suspicious. Prax finished his mug and stared at the Terran. He didn't resume speaking until Jack waved over the bartender and ordered a refill. All the supplies were brought in by automated shuttles, said Prax. No new workers, no rest or downtime for any of us. 
I've been working on space rigs my entire life, and this was the first time I ever seen a Zexlab project with no Vilkas in sight. So it got me thinking. If the Zykeslaw was building something they didn't want anyone to know about, then what was going to happen to us after we finished our work, hmm? I got more and more nervous, and when the station was nearly complete, I managed to steal a shuttle and get out of there before, as my people say, the mine caved in. Another mug arrived, and Prax drank. I kept my head down, but I also made some quiet inquiries, and sure enough, no one's heard of any of my workmates ever again. They disappeared the year before the Zaxlar did. What was so special about this station? What were the Zaxlar trying to hide? Jack kept his voice steady, despite his excitement. If Prax's story checked out, this could be huge. He couldn't wait to have Ace verify it. It houses artificial cocoons of some kind. Countless thousands of them, built inside a station that's designed to last. He finished the mug. I think the Zygslaw are ready to enter whatever is the next stage of their evolution. They enter those cocoons and Jum only knows what's going to come out of them. Or when. What will you charge to take me there? asked Jack. Oh, said Prax. I'm not going within a light year of that place. I'll sell the coordinates to the highest bidder. There are already several interested parties. I'm not interested in bidding, said Jack. I'll get you off this planet and pay you a large sum of money. But only if you come with me right now. And only if your information checks out. Prax thought about it and named an astronomically large sum. For the next several minutes, they negotiated. Jack thought it was odd that the bartender was on his calm the moment the two of them got up to leave the saloon. Stack deck was less than half a mile away, and he nudged Prax to pick up the pace. They moved quickly, but not fast enough. A block away from the spaceport, a dozen armed chitters blocked their path. The insectoid aliens bore the mark of the warrior cast on their chitinous armor. They positioned themselves in a wide semicircle, out of each other's line of fire. They weren't bounty hunters or petty criminals, Jack noted, but a military unit, bred and trained for combat. The other interested party? asked Jack. One of them, grumbled Prax. Jack's mind raced. He was so close to unraveling the mystery, the biggest secret in the galaxy. He wasn't about to give it up to these overgrown cockroaches, even if he was outgunned. In one fluid motion, he stepped behind the silicate and drew his handgun, pointing it at Prax's head. Put down your weapons and let us pass, he called out, or the information dies with him. The chitterers paused and looked at one another. Then they turned as one towards Jack and Prax and opened fire. Jack threw himself to the side, pulling Prax with him. He scrambled to his feet and made for the nearest shop, projectiles whizzing through the air around him. He felt a sharp sting just as he reached the building and threw his weight against the unlocked door. A slug grazed his left shoulder. Prax burst into the shop behind him, momentum carrying the large silicate past Jack. 
What used to be a souvenir shop was empty, looted months ago. Broken display gondolas were scattered across the floor, littered with holo images of tropical sunsets and clay knickknacks. Two of them made across the shop by the time the chitters had reached the front entrance. There was no back exit, only a staircase leading up to the apartments on the second floor. There! Prax headed up, wooden stairs groaning under his weight. Jack turned and fired a couple of shots at the approaching bugs. Then he raced after the silicate. The staircase terminated in a small corridor with several doors. Jack tried... Jack tried each in turn, but they were all locked. Open up! Let us in! He shouted on the off chance that someone was inside. But if any of the residents heard him, they wanted no part in this. Prax crashed into the furthest door with all of his considerable weight. The metal door held. The two of them faced the staircase, their backs literally against the wall. This is all your fault, Terran, hissed Prax. You just had to pull your weapon. Jack fired a shot at the chitter that was climbing the staircase. The bug ducked below the floor level and out of the line of fire. What's done is done, said Jack, as he took mental inventory of his remaining slugs. Instead of throwing accusations, let's think of a way out of this mess before I run out of ammo. Prax grunted and charged the door again, this time from a running start. It still held. Jack's vision blurred for a moment. He glanced at his shoulder. Adrenaline saved him from feeling much pain yet, but there was a lot of blood. A chitter peeked over the staircase and fired, the slug ricocheting off the whine of a metal door. Jack fired back and the chitter disappeared again. Jack cursed. Ever since the Zykeslar had vanished, he had been chasing them. At first, he thought of it only as part of his job. But then, it became an obsession. A goal that kept him up at night. He used all the resources of his office of planetary security. Traded money in secrets, but got nowhere. And now that he finally had a viable lead, he was going to be gunned down in an abandoned hallway. The universe had a cruel sense of irony. He heard the sound of gunfire downstairs. And then the chitters came, all at once, rushing up the stairs, willing to lose several soldier drones rather than play the waiting game. Jack fired off his last shots, taking down two of the bugs and stepped forward, gripping the gun to use as a melee weapon. There was more gunfire downstairs and a cracking sound. A squad of methines ascended the staircase on the heels of the chitters and discharged their energy weapons into the backs of the remaining bugs. The methines advanced on Jack and Prax. Jack lowered his gun to the floor, taking care not to make any sudden movements, released it, and raised his hands. Prax raised his hands, too. A methine female stepped through the ranks of the blue-skinned warriors. Her face was stretched in an approximation of a Terran grin. Ah, a fellow connoisseur of Zexlar secrets. It's good to see you again, Mr. Garnell, said Kana. Jack's eyes widened as he recognized his rescuer. He tried to speak, but the world swam in front of his eyes, and he slid to the floor. My field medic will get you patched up and take you to your ship, said Kana. What about him? Jack managed, fighting to stay conscious. I'm sorry, said Kana, and patted Prax's massive shoulder. How is it you Terrans put it? To the victor go the spoils. It took a few days for Jack's wound to heal after he returned from New Canberra, but his pride didn't recover so quickly. Since Kana had absconded with Prax, 
Jack redoubled his efforts to find the Zegslar on his own. He didn't have the coordinates Prax had promised him, but at least he had a lead to follow. He parsed the shipping data from a dozen star systems, looking for patterns that might betray the location of the Zegslar base, but kept coming up short. He looked further into Kana's role in the Interian government. Through discreet sources, he learned that she wielded considerable influence within her federation. Her self-proclaimed title of security chief was, while not something Ace would flag as a falsehood, a considerable understatement. And she shared his interest in the Zykeslar. There were rumors of her committing Antarian resources to the search, despite their ongoing war with the Cortian Alliance. It made him wonder whether their first meeting was really prompted by her interest in whatever meager intelligence he could provide, or the desire to meet and evaluate a competitor in the race to uncover the Zykeslar secrets. Undeterred by the lack of progress, Jack spent every free minute working on the puzzle. He toiled feverishly for three weeks, getting nowhere. Until Kana showed up on his doorstep. Malcolm glared at his chief of security. Let me get this straight. You want to team up with some black ops commander from the Antares Federation to launch an attack against the secret Zyklar base. Jack chewed his lip and nodded. That would be the same operative who stole an asset from under your nose on New Canberra? She saved my life, Malcolm. And she's dealing in good faith. Ace has verified her every word. Kana had sought Jack out because she needed his help. She'd extracted the Zyklar base location from Prax and used her spy drones to confirm it. But she'd also discovered that the station was too well armed. Then her own government had stonewalled her, unwilling to commit more than a few vessels to the mission. Their forces were stretched thin, defending Federation planets against Alliance incursions. She needed more manpower. Meager as the Stamidon fleet was by comparison, she needed their ships and men in order to take the station, and she was willing to offer Jack an equal share of whatever they discovered. Ace had confirmed her claims. Malcolm frowned. Just because she isn't lying doesn't mean what she wants is a good idea. Jack struggled to suppress his annoyance. He'd been an invaluable member of Malcolm's team, instrumental in their mutual rise to the top. So why had the man been so unsupportive of Jack's ideas and initiatives? Why did he always act as though Jack was just another political ally, to be used when possible and outmaneuvered when necessary? Do you know that there is a pattern to what the different races believe about the disappearance of the Zykeslar? asked Jack. Malcolm tilted his head. A pattern. The warlike Saurians assume that the Zykeslar are on their way over the next galaxy in search of new worlds to conquer. The inquisitive Methines think the Zykeslar are exploring some higher dimension. The hive-minded Chitters believe the Zykeslar have abandoned their individualism in favor of joining in some sort of an overmind state of singularity. I think I understand, said Malcolm. Each species is projecting some of their own attributes onto their absent conquerors. Indeed, said Jack. But the Zykeslar don't think like that, do they? No, they are methodical, careful, eager to play out the long game. They're very much like you, Malcolm. The Zykeslar have been setting up their dominoes for centuries, launching grandiose plans across the galaxy, uplifting species in terraforming worlds, and moving millions of beings across the galaxy in a pattern that's apparent only to them. Don't you want to know what the plan is, Malcolm? 
Don't you want to know before they return and push that single domino piece in the front so that you can do your best to stay out of the way when all the rest of the pieces begin to tumble? Malcolm beamed a politician's smile at his chief of security. That's just it, my friend. They've set projects and motions that will take centuries to come to fruition. I don't think the Zyklar will be back in our lifetimes. Or children's lifetimes. Even if I learn their secrets, I am not a good enough strategist to plan ahead by millennia. I'm sorry, but I must say no. I'm not going to order our fleet to go out there and poke at a sleeping chosset bear. Jack tried, very hard, not to slam the door on his way out. This is a black ops mission, Jack informed Commander Craggs, the sergeant in charge of the Stamina Navy. I'll take a dreadnought and three frigates. Once we leave, I want a total communication blackout. No messages to or from the fleet until we return and discuss the mission with no one else in the government. The president wants plausible deniability. Should anything go wrong, it'll only be my head on the spike. From his expression, Craggs clearly wasn't too pleased to be parted with such a significant chunk of his navy. But Jack knew the idea to doubt the legitimacy of the planetary chief of security's orders would never occur to him. By the time Malcolm would realize what had happened, Jack would be long gone and the radio silence would ensure that Malcolm and Craggs couldn't recall his expeditionary force before it completed its mission. For all his supposed strategic genius, Malcolm didn't believe in Jack, didn't grasp the importance of what his security chief was doing. But Jack knew he was right, and he had no choice but to take matters into his own hands. He would come back with invaluable intel, and perhaps even a bounty of Zykeslar technological wonders that would serve Stamadin better than Malcolm's political machinations ever could. He would show Malcolm that he was right all along. He would show them all. Jack's fleet rendezvous with Kana's in deep space. The Interian Expeditionary Force consisted of six destroyers and two light cruisers. Along with Jack's four ships, it made for an impressive amount of firepower. Jack insisted on taking command of the combined fleet, citing the fact that he'd brought the Valiant Wind, one of the jewels of the Stamadin Navy, and by far the most powerful of the gathered ships. Connor reluctantly agreed and joined him aboard the Dreadnought, which became the flagship of their fleet. The stacked deck was parked in the cargo holds of the Behemoth, as close as Jack could place it to the bridge. He had Ace continually scan both the bridge crew and Connor for any signs of deception or insubordination. Nothing could be allowed to go wrong. Once on board, Connor provided the coordinates to Jack's astrogators, and the fleet set course for a system so obscure, it only had a number for a name. Connor drafted the attack plan, based on the reconnaissance info obtained by our spy drones. The ships approached the fourth planet from the system's red dwarf star. They used an asteroid belt to mask their presence for as long as possible, then charged towards the planet at maximum in-system speed. Jack's heart skipped a beat when he first saw the space station orbiting the planet. The Zykeslar design was unmistakable. They had installed such high-tech fortresses to guard strategically important worlds all over the galaxy. The Dreadnought launched attack drones, which raced ahead of the fleet, engaging the self-guiding mines and the other automated defenses positioned in far orbit. Explosions lit up like fireworks across the blackest space, as machine battled machine. 
The station is sending out a coded distress call, sir. The communications officer called from her console. Our computer is attempting to decipher it. Jack nodded. As the ships got closer, the station unleashed a volley of missiles. The fleet countered by launching thousands of small magnetic disks, designed to fool the missiles' guiding systems and explode the charges harmlessly away from their targets. Jack felt overwhelmed by the commander's chair. In addition to the live images displayed on various screens, a steady stream of data on tactical maneuvers, armaments, and astrogations scrolled rapidly down his console. The destroyer reached the firing range first and made a pass along the station's perimeter, targeting its defensive armaments with plasma cannons. The station fought back with a mix of laser and projectile weapons. Jack concentrated on the data, but trying to read it while the ship twisted and turned during every evasive maneuver made him nauseous. After a while, he gave up on trying to process all of it and studied for relying on the ship's captain and his experienced crew to handle the details of the battle. He gripped the arms of a sea as he watched one of the destroyers take a direct hit from several torpedoes. It limped away from the station, a jagged hole smoking at its side. The rest of the destroyer swung around for another pass. Jack thought his side was winning, but he couldn't be certain. Around him, the bridge officers coordinated the battle with practiced efficiency. He felt useless, idling in the center of their activity. He tried to look busy and in control to inspire confidence in his crew should any of them find a moment to look up from their own consoles. The ship banked hard to the left, then shuddered. Jack held on tight to avoid getting thrown out of his seat. The lights on the bridge dimmed for a fraction of a second. Jack smelled a faint scent of smoke. Deck 14 is sealed off, reported one of the officers behind him. Power has been rerouted successfully, said another. Redundancy systems are at full capacity. Jack glanced at Kana, who observed the battle from her seat on the Valiant's bridge, as impassable and unreadable as ever. She studied her data feed, and looked steadier than he felt. The Interian cruisers concentrated their fire in the upper rungs of the station, where much of its weaponry was based. Jack's dreadnought shifted until its port side faced the station and fired its gun batteries, the bridge vibrating with every missile launch. Despite the lack of space combat experience, it soon became apparent to Jack that the lone orbital defense station stood no chance against the combined might of twelve warships. His confidence soared with every turret silenced, each defense structure disintegrated or blown away from a station proper and sent spinning towards the planet underneath. Within minutes, the fleet obliterated the station's offensive weaponry, turning entire sections of the vast structure into scrap metal. Once he could no longer feel the vibrations of enemy fire against the hull of the dreadnought, and saw the tension draining from the faces of his crew, Jack sat up straight and drew a deep breath. Cease fire, he ordered. Launch the boarding parties. Jack licked his lips in anticipation. The galaxy's greatest secret was within his grasp. The dreadnought and the frigate stopped firing. But Kana's ships continued to attack. Tell them to stop immediately, Jack shouted at Kana. They'll damage your prize. Kana made no move to act. The computer has deciphered some of the message, sir, called out the communications officer. It has the Corton Alliance signature. The destroyers continued to fire upon the station, while the two cruisers raced towards the planet and dropped a payload of bombs. What is the meaning of this? Jack drew his gun and pointed it at the methane's torso. For the first time since the battle had begun, Kana's facial expression changed. 
It now matched the one Jack remembered from New Canberra. Kana was smiling. Shooting me may make you feel better, but it won't change anything, said Kana. I exploited your obsession with the Zyklar and got you to do exactly what I wanted. There was never a secret Zyklar base. The Stamina ships just helped take out a Corton Alliance black site, and when the distress call reaches their homeworld, they won't be happy. She spoke loudly enough to make sure the bridge crew heard every word. President Carver managed to keep Stamadin neutral for a long time, but now his hand has been forced. Stamadin can join the Interran Foundation or be crushed by the retaliatory strike from the Corton Alliance. Jack's head swam. He thought back to the data Kana had fed him, to Prax, who was likely an Interran agent all along, to all the dominoes Kana had patiently set up in order to play him. But how in the world did she manage to fool Ace? Lucky for him, we like Carver, said Kana. He is an excellent strategist, one I look forward to working with. Once he recognizes the reality of the situation, I'm sure he'll fall in line. She stared at Jack. You, on the other hand, will have to resign. Your obsession blinds you. If I can manipulate you this easily, so will others. She took a step closer to him. Shoot me to have your revenge, or put down your weapon, and I'll help you avoid the firing squad. Reluctantly, Jack lowered his weapon. Inside his head, Ace was screaming in frustration and rage. The Kansai did not understand how Kana had concealed her true intentions any more than Jack did, and it was causing him great distress. How... how did you... Jack stammered. I know all about your pet octopus, said Kana. You rely on the crutch of his mind-reading abilities too much that you let down your guard and forget to think for yourself. She produced a sleek plastic device from one of her suit pockets. Your Kanzai is enhanced with cyclar technology, and all technology can be subverted. This gadget masks my electric biosignature. When it's on, I can claim that space is pink and the stars are made of porcelain, and he'll think I'm telling the truth. Jack stood in the bridge of the valiant wind, his shoulders slumped, a forlorn Kanzai wailing inside his mind. Set course for Stamadin, Captain, said Kana. Malcolm Carver and I have much to discuss. While the valiant wind prepared to leave the system, Jack watched Kana's ships finish off the orbital defense station. Long after the ship had departed, Jack stood on the bridge, staring at the black of space on the monitor screen, the vision of falling dominoes vivid in his mind's eye. There you go. Big thank you to Iba for narrating that. And Alex, it's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Perry. It's just, you made a great little story there come to life, both of you. Thank you so much. So before we get into the final little short fiction, do you know what I mean? Like I see, I was mentioning, you know, I've got to keep plugging away, man, because we are kind of getting a little bit kind of desperate now. Please, Patreon, support this show and Tales to Terrify and Farfetched Fables. Now, you can see it, there's another bill kind of just dropped on me lap there now, so I need to kind of get that sorted out. So if you honestly support it, it would be amazing. Do you know what I mean? Just a little as two fifty five dollars you know what I mean? Just whatever you can. Monthly little donations, just keep this little girl going. Thank you so much. 
So we'll jump into this final bit of fiction. And it is Stripped Zero, which originally appeared in Nature, written by Stephen S. Power. I'll give you a little heads up about Stephen. Stephen S. Power novel, The Dragon Round, will be published by Simon & Schuster in July 2016, so it could be out as well. His work has recently appeared in Daily Science Fiction, and his stories are forthcoming in EA Amazing Stories, Deep Magic, Flash Fiction Online, and Lightspeed. He tweets at Stephen S. Power. His site is stephenspower.com, and he lives in Maplewood, New Jersey, USA. This story is narrated by Adrian Collins, who is a Sydney-based founder of Grimdog magazine. You should get that one. He loves reading about anti-heroes and seeing a story from the perspective of a villain across all genres, especially SFF. When not reading, he is generally getting stuck into a beer with mates, travelling and working as a bid writer. Come up and say good day. <laughs> That's hideous. Sorry, sorry, everyone. Just say good day, everyone. That's uh, my rendition of uh, Australians. Come and say good day over on Adrian G Mag and Facebook Grimdark Magazine. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present Strip to Zero by Stephen S. Power. I don't know why we bother waiting on the stoop. After an hour, I grab Tommy's Kalu backpack and reach for his hand. He tucks it against his chest. It kills me, but I can't blame him. I'd call his mother if Karen would carry a phone, or answer if she did. Tommy follows me inside and says, Do I still get chips for being good? Sure, I say, turning. If you can beat me, go! We race across the lobby and down a hall to the 24 shop, a small room lined with video displays. I let him dart in just ahead of me, and the shop says, Good morning, Tommy. How does she always know my name, Daddy? I shrug. To a four-year-old, even the most mundane technology is indistinguishable from magic. The shop has a woman's voice, soft and warm, and I imagine her kneeling when she asks him, What would you like, Tommy? He looks from screen to screen, dancing chips, splashing sodas, cookies, ice cream and comfort foods. The shop says, How about cornflakes with milk? A bowl of cereal appears. No. Chips, he says. It's much too early. Oatmeal with cinnamon? Steaming oatmeal appears. No. Chips. Daddy. Stupid nutrition protocols. He can have a snack. The shop says nothing. Instead, images flow down a screen like a slot machine before settling on a moon pie. Yes. And a Coke? Why not, I say. A red light blinks above the bill slot. Standing behind Tommy, I nod and the light turns green. A moon pie tumbles into the one tray, a can of RC into another. What do you want, Henry? Tommy takes my hand. Nothing, I say. I'm good. Upstairs, Tommy turns on the TV and tears into his food. He's promptly shown commercials for moon pies and RC. This he thinks nothing of. I head for my reading room and find Karen sitting on the toilet tank. The mirror's unplugged and draped with towels. I close the door. What are you doing in here? How did you even get in? I spoofed a pass card. I'd get you a real card. Worse than phones. She glances through the high, small window. He waited an hour for you. I know. I watched. From the shadows? Jesus. He can't remember most of your shit, but it's starting to stick. 
It's not shit. I hold up my hands. Look, he misses you. Come out. I'll tell him you don't make excuses for me. And I'm not going near that TV. This toilet's bad enough. Probably reporting my weight. She lifts her boots off the lid. Fine. I'll call him. No. Then why get his hopes up? Why this? I wanted to see him, but I needed to speak with you. She slides down and stands close. She seems taller and thinner. Probably the boots. I'm leaving, she says. For good. I won't be coded anymore. I won't be tagged. It's killing me. So you'll kill him instead. He's just another tag, Henry. He's a little boy. No, we're just data sets here. Why can't you see that? Is that all you want him to be? Now I get it. You're not taking him. We could live clean, stripped to zero, anonymous. This place I'm going, I'll get him to his room, I say, and grip the doorknob. Slither out, and the TV won't see you either. I don't worry about her snatching Tommy. It'd be easier for her to disappear if no one wanted to find her, and I would. Then tell him, she says, when he's old enough, that I'm not crazy. He'll never be that old. My watch screen flares. Tommy knocks. Daddy, I don't feel well. I look at Karen. She's already ducking behind the black shower curtain. I open the door. Tommy's face is pale, sweaty, and smeared with moon pie. With a whir, the toilet lifts its lid. Quickly, we kneel together on the mat, and Tommy spews brown black vomit. I hear my mother say, You just had to let him eat all that junk, didn't you? The toilet expresses a milky foam that bonds with the vomit and then vacuums it away. I wipe Tommy's mouth with a tissue as a scent of vanilla fills the room. Smells like mummy, he says. Yeah. I loved her vanilla perfume, which is why she stopped wearing it. Afterwards, she seemed invisible. I could set the vents to vanilla too. No. I want mummy. I know. I rub his back. Why didn't she come? Tommy slams the toilet lid down. Where is she? I take his wrists and turn him so I can look him in the eyes. Do you love her? He nods. Then she's always nearby. Like in the shower? Ha! Exactly. Come on, let's get a new shirt on you. I pick Tommy up and bring him to his room. While he pours through a drawer, I hear her footstep outside. I smell the vanilla again. My stomach twists and despite everything, I want her to rush in and grab us both. So when the front door clicks, I'm horribly relieved, like someone watching his terminal partner finally die. Tommy pulls out his Batman t-shirt. I bend him into it. We go to the living room and flop down in a heap before the TV. The first commercial is for vanilla air fresheners. It's on every channel. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Stephen S. Power. Stephen, thank you so much. Lovely to have you on the show. And just great narration as well. Thank you so much, Adrian. Lovely. Thank you. So that is today's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. Big thank you to everyone who's taken part and who's kind of offered their experiences in writing and narrating. Thank you so much. So until next week, I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed?
can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Stories of Activation This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.